What's your name? Ted Robinson. What was the title of your first job in Major League Baseball? Director of Promotions and Group Sales for the Oakland Athletics with a budget of zero. How many total years have you worked in Major League Baseball and for what teams? As a broadcaster, 22 full seasons between Oakland, Minnesota, San Francisco, and the New York Mets. Between the Winter and Summer Olympics, how many different Olympic Games have you worked and how many sports? I've worked 11 Olympics, uh, and I couldn't count the number of sports. <laughs> it would take me a while. But the primary sports uh, have been diving, short track speed skating. But my first Summer Olympic Games was baseball. I called the USA gold medal in Sydney 2000. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, I get the pleasure of interviewing one of the broadcasters who I grew up listening to and idolizing. I feel like if you divided Ted Robinson's career into four or five different sports, each of them individually would be impressive. His work in baseball, the Olympics, tennis, Grand Slams, basketball, NCAA, NFL, you add them all together and it is legendary. Five decades into his career, he's still going strong as ever. Ted Robinson is next on this edition of Life Around the Scenes. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. for joining me, Ted. Josh, it's great to be with you, man. I knew you when you were this young writer, earnest, uh, hardworking, persistent, dogged, and you have made the leap. And now you're in a position, as I as I found out by listening to you on some other podcasts, you, know, you have one of the pre- most prestigious AAA baseball jobs in my years of baseball. Everybody looked at Albuquerque as, this, as a, you know, a launch pad for the big leagues. Yeah, I love it. It, it, it is awesome. Um, I, I need to start by, uh, by maybe embarrassing you and tell you about a story. Um, it was 2012, and I was broadcasting the, the area code games at Blairfield and Long Beach. Area code games are like this high school showcase. There's no fans there. It's all scouts. And I broadcasted the game for ESPN3, and it was all day. There was four or five games. I started as the dugout reporter in the middle of some game, Somebody had to leave, so I went up to the, the booth and did play-by-play the rest of the day. And at the end of it, there's a producer by the name of John Hefner. And Hefner complimented me on my work, and he said that I reminded him of Ted Robinson. And I went, wow, that's amazing. This is so cool that someone would compliment me that way. Wow, I hope, I hope he meant that as a compliment, huh? <laughs> that's, that's nice to hear, Josh. Well, those things are... are um... Yeah, I mean, they're obviously they're flattering, and um, you know, look, the fact that you've done what you have to switch 
in essence, switch careers, which I did when I was in college. I wrote in college all the time. I wrote for the student newspaper. I wrote for the student magazine. I wrote sports information, media guides, and press releases, and wrote forever. I wrote on the side for the San Francisco Chronicle during the first years of, of uh, Pac Bell Park then for the Giants, because that was always my fallback. If I ever couldn't talk or someone in positions of power thought I couldn't talk anymore, writing was going to be my plan B. So you made that switch uh, still at a fairly early age, but man, that is very commendable. Okay, so we could go in so many different directions because of all of your work, but because this is primarily a baseball podcast and because I'm from the Bay Area and that's where you've lived most of your life now, I think I just want to mostly just geek out and talk baseball and talk Bay Area baseball because I think it's so fun. And I wanted to start every time that I think I've heard every story of Charlie Finley, and then I learn another one. And so I'm reading Dale Tafoya's recent book, Billy Ball, which is really good. And in that book, I learned that there was, I'm going to give the headline and then let you give the details, that there's a lawsuit that is filed and it forces Charlie Finley, then the owner, to hire somebody with the title of director of promotions. You're 22 years old and you get hired. Explain how in the world this came together. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I, I promise I won't give an abridged version here because the full story, I, people would, would turn this podcast off. It would take too long. But um, first of all, Dale Tafoya, I'm glad you gave him a plug because he called me about two years ago to talk about this project. And now that I've seen the book, it's a great piece of work. And it is a moment in baseball that will never happen again. You will never again have a major league baseball team. And it's, and I say this only 40 years ago that was run with such a skeleton operation <laughs> that was ecstatic when they drew 10,000 people to a major league game, ecstatic. And for the year, the attendance, uh, boy, my memory, somewhere just over 800,000 was the paid attendance for the Oakland A's for the 1980 season, which averages out to 10,000 plus a game. And that was, the American League was going to throw a parade for that. That's how happy they were given where the team had been. So um, so the short version, I was working in minor league hockey and my second job had been in Cincinnati, which was obviously a major league city in baseball and football, but minor league in the winter sports, and the team I worked for had folded at Christmas of 1979. So I went back to New York, which is where I grew up, where my parents still lived. So I was 20, uh, 22 years old, out of a job, and I went home and lived in my parents' house for the only time as an adult, collected unemployment for the only time as an adult. And my father, bless him, for some reason, somewhere in February, January, February, he said, why don't you just, like, call Charlie Finley? I'm a 22-year-old kid in New York that was a minor league hockey announcer. Like, what are you talking about, Dad? He goes, just call him. So what's – and the lesson that I've told multiple generations of younger people that I learned from my father this was the worst thing he can do is say no. And human nature, we don't like to hear no. No one likes to hear no. So you have to fight that. Well, this was a great lesson for me. So short again version. I picked up the phone one day in New York and called – Charlie Finley's office in Chicago. He had an insurance office in a building in downtown Chicago, and his number was easily available in information. I called, and believe it or not, his assistant put me through the first phone call. 
So I'm talking to Charlie Finley on the phone. How nervous and are you? I was, well, I, it was, it was the old baseball version of being young and dumb. I was a combination of those two things. So I probably didn't even realize what had happened. I remember I was in my parents' bedroom using their old rotary dial phone and I was startled that I got through. So I summoned up enough blah, 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 blah to explain who I was and that I was a Notre Dame graduate and had wanted to, you know, just get involved in baseball. And I was willing to do anything to be involved. And he talked to me for about five minutes, listened to me and he goes, all right, you know, I'm trying to uh, uh, sell the team here. I'm not sure what's going to happen. So uh, call me back next week. And he was literally trying to sell the team for about the seventh time to Marvin Davis, an old Denver based oil man. And the team was going to move to Denver. That was the, the plan. Well, now it's late January, early February. It goes along. I start calling back and I get nowhere. Now I'm being blocked. And so as it turned out, I subsequently found out that the A's went to spring training and they literally had two different moving vans booked to leave spring training. One to bring the team to Oakland, the other to take the team to Denver. That's how close it was. Well, during spring training, the Denver thing falls through. So now the team's going back to Oakland for the 1980 season. At the same time, um, I'm being blocked, and I came up with the most important thought that I had in this whole process, knowing that I was a Notre Dame graduate. Charlie Finley lived in Chicago, but he had a farm in LaPorte, Indiana, which is a town about halfway between Chicago and South Bend. And his farmhouse, during all the years that I was in college, uh, had a white barn that was on the Indiana toll road side of the property and it had a big A's logo painted on the roof with a bat and a ball. That's how you knew it was Finley's property. Well, Charlie would come to Notre Dame once a year to see a football game. It was you know, maybe half an hour drive from his farm to South Bend. Well, I called the sports information director, longtime legendary sports information director, Roger Valdeseri, for whom I had worked as a student at Notre Dame. And I asked Roger, Roger, do you know Charlie? He goes, yeah, I know him. I said, would you mind? I've tried to get through to him. I'm trying to just get hired to do something. Would you call? Roger did. And the next time, about probably a few days later, I called Finley. I got put through for the second time. So now Finley starts saying, yeah, I may have something. I may have something. He's putting me off again. But at least I'm talking to him. This goes on. The season starts. The A's get off to this great start. Billy Martin has been hired. They're winning games. Charlie has no radio deal. He started the year with no radio contract. Hard to believe, right? Right. So now the A's get really going. I am going to Chicago uh, when I can to visit the woman who is my wife. And we were dating at the time, and she was working in Chicago. And uh, I happened to be in, on a Friday afternoon in the loop after having lunch with my wife-to-be, and I went to a payphone and called Finley's office on Friday afternoon at probably 2 o'clock, got through, and he goes, where are you? And I said, well, actually, Mr. Finley, I'm in Chicago. I'm in the loop. And he goes, if you can get over here by 3.30, get here. Excuse me? And I had, like, pretty ratty clothing on. I ran over to his office, and I got up Friday afternoon, and I went in his office and he took me in and they sat down at his literal, his office was one assistant and him. That's it in a, probably six different rooms, but that's all that was there. Little did I know that was an omen of how the A's were run. So I sat at his desk for half an hour 
And I told him that I was an announcer. I wanted to be an announcer, but I did all these other things. I was the, you know, you work in minor league sports as I did in minor league hockey for two jobs. You do everything. I wrote programs. I sold advertising, sold tickets, booked travel, hired the anthem singers, the Zamboni drivers. And by the way, if you have time left over, you announce the games. That's the traditional minor league model. So I told him I would be willing to do all those things if I could have some, some broadcast thing. And he goes, well, I'm signing a radio deal and I have two announcers, but I, I would definitely, uh, I have something for you. Come back here Monday morning at, uh, I'm pretty sure he told me it was, it was, it was Monday morning at 11 o'clock. Excuse me. Yes. Be here Monday morning at 11 o'clock. So I think I just got a job. I have no idea what the job is, but I just got a job. So I stay the weekend in Chicago go back Monday. And now somehow I can't remember my wife may remember how somehow I found a, a, a coat and tie. So now I dressed up the proper way to go Monday morning. I go up to his office at 10 50 and at 11 o'clock they show me and I sit down. And the first thing he looks at me, he goes, didn't I tell you to be here at 10 o'clock? <laughs> okay. So that was the beginning of what was going to be a six hour test session. He was just challenging. And of course I had to find an Delicate way to say, well, Mr. Finley, I'm sorry. I must have misheard you. I believed I heard you say 11 a.m. I remember saying that, which was a smart thing. Okay, I'm not challenging him. I'm taking it on myself. I sat at his desk for six hours, did not move, was not offered any water or anything. And I listened to him for probably five hours and 45 minutes of those six hours talk on the phone from everybody from the then Commissioner Bowie Kuhn to Billy Martin to insurance people to the man who is still the A's director of team travel, Mickey Morabito, who had been hired already and was running travel for the A's that year because of his relationship with Billy. I heard him talk to everybody. And in the middle, he would ask me 30 seconds worth of questions. So now we get to five o'clock and I've already taken this too long. Well, listen, uh, I need somebody to be my director of promotions and group sales. And I said, Mr. Finley, and I, to this day, thank God I had the, a little bit of spine at 22 years of age to sit there and say, yes, I will be happy to do that. I'll do anything you want. I would just love to have some part of a broadcast responsibility in my mind thinking I could do a pregame show or a postgame show, right? Just do an interview. I don't right. care. I do, I'd go out there and do anything. Just 22 years old. Give me the chance to interview a guy before the game. And he looks at me and he goes, well, you know, I've got my two guys on radio and um, you know what, if you really want, I'll let you do an inning of play-by-play. So now I pick myself up off the floor, having soiled myself. And then he goes, but you're not traveling. You're not, I'm not paying for you to travel. Just do the home games. That's fine, Mr. Fendley. Thank you so much. He says, you can do uh, the third inning. You can do the third inning of the home games. And then he says, of course, you'd be the director of promotions and group sales. He says, I don't care. This is honest truth. I said, he says, I don't care what promotion you run, any promotion you want. You just don't spend any money. If you don't spend a penny, I don't care what you do. So end of story. And then he asked me what I had been making in my previous job in Cincinnati. And I told the truth as I had been raised to do by my parents beautifully. A good Catholic kid told him the truth. And he matched me. Which I, then I realized, gosh, I should have inflated that number. <laughs> but but he he paid me exactly what I'd been making in Cincinnati, which he did not have to do. He could have paid me none, none of this was big dollars back then, but he could have paid me far less, and I would have taken the job. 
just to get a job. And so I went home, went back obviously to my wife's apartment in Chicago, then went home to New York, packed bags, and a week later flew out to, uh, to the Bay Area. I was in, uh, in the old Hyatt House Hotel, which is long gone now, but that's where they put me up. And Charlie uh, agreed to give me one week in the hotel that I had to find a place to live. Couldn't find an apartment that fast. So thank God the next to last person that Charlie ever hired. I was the last person he ever hired. Next to the last person he hired was Walt Jockin, uh, who went on to be a longtime GM in baseball. Walt was hired to be the farm director. Walt and his wife, Sue, um, uh, oh, let me stay in there. They had already gotten some sort of a townhouse or condo near the ballpark. So I stayed with them for three or four nights until I was able to finally get into a rental apartment. Uh, Carl Finley was Charlie's cousin, was the man that ran the front office day to day, could not have been nicer. Treated me basically like a nephew. I mean, he was the antithesis of Charlie in every way, could not have been a nicer man. And I, I worked for four and a half, about four and a half months for them. And Carl was my protector in many cases with Charlie. So that's a slightly longer version of the story, Josh. Yeah. So I, uh, Carl's uh, daughter, Nancy, she wrote a really interesting book that I remember reading a few years ago. And it sounded like you got fired multiple times by Charlie and then Carl would save you. Three times in one day. Three times in one day. That was the only time. He only fired me one day, but he fired me three times in the one day. Okay. What did you do to earn his wrath that day? Uh, nothing. I was breathing. <laughs> well, I mean, I was fodder. I was, I was fodder for him. And I knew, I mean, I, I, you know, at the time I was 22. And so you're a little bit, uh, a little, what's the word, I guess, you know, you, I, I didn't have, didn't have experience. I didn't have a lot of hair on me. I just, you know, so what would I remember vividly about that? It was the day that um, Charlie was selling the team. He was comp- he was consummating the sale of the team to the Haas family. Lee McPhail was the president of the American League. Lee McPhail flew out to, in my mind, everything I remember from that weekend and subsequently have never been, had a reason to disbelieve, is that he came out to make sure Charlie sold the team. Because mm-hmm. Charlie had been to the altar multiple times before and not sold. Baseball wanted to be done with Charlie. And here's a local, extraordinarily well-thought-of family willing to buy the team and keep it in Oakland. Lee wanted to make sure Charlie sold the team. So anyway, the, uh, the stories could go on forever, but uh, I, uh, it was probably like second inning, fifth inning, seventh inning, uh, and Charlie had a, a, a retired Oakland police officer who went by Sarge that was, in essence, Charlie's bodyguard. Not that he needed one, but Charlie's bodyguard when he came to town. So Sarge comes over to the radio booth and the second inning taps me on the shoulder. Hey, Sarge, he goes, yeah, Mr. Finley wants to see you. So I go down to the booth, and... It's Charlie and Lee McPhail and I remember probably a couple of other, there may have been some Haas family people there. I, I didn't know, but uh, he starts railing on me because uh, I think there were uh, no stats, not enough stat sheets printed out, which of course the reason was because we weren't supposed to print out multiple stat sheets because it costs money. And you can't, I couldn't say that, right? That was not an acceptable answer to give. So Charlie erupts at me and then fires me. Okay. So I said, all right, it's a Sunday. I said, okay, I'm going to go down and do the third inning. I'm going to get my last inning in. So I do the third inning and I'm sitting there in the fifth inning and, and Sarge comes back and hits me again. And I go, oh my gosh, now what, you know, is he going to tell me that I, you know, I'm going to get ejected from the ballpark. I'll go down there. And now he's yelling at me because 
there's no hot dogs in the back of the box. Mr. McPhail wants a hot dog and there are no hot dogs. Well, of course, same reason. We didn't have enough food because it costs money. Right. You're fired. So that's time to, and I'm going to promise I'll condense this. So now I'm back and now I figure he really means it. So I'm kind of got my head drooping a little bit. I figure right, I'm going to go home and pack my apartment up and try to get out of the last month rent and I'll fly back to New York again, blah, blah, blah. Seventh inning, Sarge comes back, taps me again. So this time I have that idiot, naive tame moment of thinking, maybe Mr. Finley realized he, he made a mistake. And I go back down there. Mr. McPhail wants to know what the scores of the other games are. Why don't we have the scores of them? Blah, 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 blah. Well, same reason. And a wonderful man who is, is uh, not in the best of health right now, but has worked his whole life in that booth, Chester Farrow. Chester Farrow was there that year. And Chester used to take the old ticker tape that come through the old machine and would hand process scores up on the out-of-town scoreboard. But he could only do it once every so often because he had to do six other jobs because <laughs> Charlie didn't want to pay to have enough people to fully man the scoreboard room. It was the truth. Couldn't say that answer. So Charlie fires me a third time because the scores aren't going up on the board. They went up at once every second inning or something like that. Um, and this time when I turned the booth and went out of the booth in the hallway, in the corridor, right outside the booth was Carl. And he looked at me and he goes, be here at nine o'clock tomorrow. I can't. Carl had an old school kind of Oklahoma drawl to him. And he says, be here at nine o'clock tomorrow. Boy, I said, Carl, he's fired me three times today. Be here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. So I showed up at nine o'clock Monday morning and about nine, 10, the phone rings and it goes into Carl's office and Carl says, for you. And I pick it up and it's Charlie. So what are we going to do for Billy? We got to do something for Billy. <laughs> Showing off for Lee McPhail. Right. And I only, and the end of the story is I only worked another probably two weeks because the Haas family came in. Uh, I had a meeting with Roy Eisenhart and Roy, you know, he, he basically, he didn't tell me the names, but he said, look, we're going to hire big time announcers. So you're not going to be an announcer. If you want to stay here and work, we'll find a job for you. But it is, there is going to be any announcing involved. And I had uh, the opportunity to go to Minnesota and work for a hockey team up there. So that's what I did. That's how the story ends. Out of those, uh, so I guess you did roughly 81 innings that year, if it's, if it's one inning per home game. By any chance, was there one that stands out where Ricky Henderson stole three bases or Billy got kicked out or Murphy robbed a home run and you felt like, this is my calling. I can do this, and this is what I, I'm hoping to do the rest of my life. Well, I've never been asked that, Josh. I don't – I still have cassette tapes, maybe a half a dozen of them back here, probably six different innings that I called that season um, because it was the third inning of games. I don't remember anything – any specific play or call, but there was a, a tipping point moment in, in somewhere because by midsummer now – people were paying attention to the A's. The Giants were not having a great year. The A's were having this extraordinary year. Ricky, the four starting pitchers, and Bill. I mean, the mix was incredible. It was a perfect storm in a good sense. And again, the number that I use, and you've heard it, I'm sure, many times, even as young as you are, but that season, they had 94 complete games. 94 complete games by one team in one season, and it was just 40 years ago, four different starting pitchers that year, Norris, Langford, Keel, and McCaddy, sadly we just lost Matt the other day, each of them had a 14-inning complete game. That's just can't even begin to fathom that today. So people were paying attention. And probably in July, 
the phone rings in the office. And by the way, the office was about six people. Uh, and the office phone rings, it's for me. And it was a writer for the San Francisco Examiner named Stephanie Salter. And she said, you know, basically, I want to write a story about you. Go, what? Well, here was this disembodied young voice that showed up on radio station KDIA for the third inning of home games. And people were listening. And I guess you should find out who this kid is. He sounds okay. So Stephanie Salter did a story about what we just talked about and how crazy it was that I had ended up in this spot. And it ran on the front page of the Examiner Sports section, which in 1980, the Examiner was a thriving, healthy afternoon paper. It had a lot of circulation in the Bay Area. Um, and it was a, it was a credit. I mean, the blunt truth was it was credibility for me. I don't know if it excited my, the veteran broadcast partners all that much. I, I didn't ask for it. It just happened. And so that was the moment. That was the, the, the moment that, okay, I could know, I knew I could do something and I could take this and go. And actually by that, by probably late August, around the time of the big fired stories, the Minnesota North Stars, had reached out because they were the team that had hired me for their minor league team coming out of college. They had reached out with a potential job at the major league team, which was a combination of sales and some broadcast work. And that's eventually what I wound up doing. So I left the A's before the season ended. Uh, I left in September because I had no future. Charlie was gone. He didn't care anymore. And this job, you know, the season was starting for the NHL team. So I left somewhere right after Labor Day. And then you come back to the Bay Area, um, if I know, my notes are right, 1985, 86, 87. And I believe you had already been doing the Warriors, uh, replacing Bill King by then. Um, but from a baseball standpoint, what, what got you back to the Bay Area and the lessons that you learned working with Bill King and Lon Simmons? Well, that's, yeah, that last part, that's great, Josh. Uh, so I left and went to work in Minnesota in September of 80. And I spent two years there and I actually wound up working full-time for a radio station in Minneapolis uh, and being involved with the North Stars hockey team. Uh, And I was just looking to see if I could make a step up. And so in 1982, I was hired the fall of 82. So I was in Minnesota exactly two years, hired by KCBS radio in San Francisco as a sportscaster. That led to an opportunity to succeed Bill, uh, as the Warriors announcer, Bill retired in 83 from doing the Warriors. So I did two years of the Warriors. In the meantime, an odd thing had happened in 1984, probably February. Um, the Detroit Tigers started, uh, you know, this was the year people listen, younger people like yourself listening, what are you talking about? Well, 1984, this is when a fledgling few cities were starting regional sports networks. Mm-hmm. The first big one, I, one of the first big ones was Chicago. Uh, Sports Channel Chicago had started. Sports Channel New York had started. Well, the Detroit Tigers started theirs in the 1984 season, and they reached out and hired one of the announcers from the Minnesota Twins TV package. Well, the people in Minnesota knew me. So they were in February. It was late, I remember, and they didn't have a second announcer. So they called me, and it was a, back then all road games. I think there were two or three home games was all anybody did on TV. So I had basically I did 50 road Minnesota Twins baseball games in 1984 while I still did my KCBS 
radio job in San Francisco. I would do my morning sports shows from the road when I was on the road with the twins. And Casey Guest was great about allowing me to do that. So I did that for one year. That was a stopgap. That wasn't going to continue because I couldn't do that long-term. The twins wanted somebody living in Minnesota. And so as a result, 1985 is coming around, and I just had my one baseball run. 50 major league baseball games. That was and not like the Finley year. This was legit. I mean, I was on TV doing three or four innings of play-by-play a game, and it was the real deal. So, 1985, uh, somewhere early in that year, I get a call from Andy Dolich, who I had met, who was running the business operations for the A's. And of course, it was a magnificent business that he was running, and he put me in touch with Channel Five. KPIX, which was the A's television partner then, and they hired me to do A's TV in 85. And again, it was even less. It was 35 games, I believe, and almost all road. Uh, And I was the constant presence in the TV booth. Bill and Lon would rotate in and out from radio. So that's what my job was to be the the nine-inning presence on the TV side. Bill and Lon switched back and forth. In a, you know, again, a model that you don't have today because we didn't have a former player in the booth. Right. In essence, it was kind of like doing a radio broadcast on TV. For me, it was extraordinary because I believe, and someone else may have had the same honor and can correct me on this, I don't believe anybody else ever worked with both Bill and Lon on the same, on the same broadcasts. And I had that, you know, actually, and I should say Wayne Hagen, my friend Wayne, uh, Wayne did because Wayne worked on the A's radio with Bill and Lon uh, during the first years of the Haas family ownership before Wayne moved on. Um, But anyway, it was an extraordinary experience. And I learned so much about how to broadcast baseball because Bill and Lon, both Hall of Famers, both extraordinary, both were incredibly gracious to me. Bill had been amazingly gracious to me when I had succeeded him as the Warrior announcer because he publicly said basically give this kid a chance. I mean, here was a guy that was regarded as a, as a basketball Oracle in the Bay area. And now he's retiring and some young punk is going to follow him. And Bill said, give him a chance. And I'll always remember that. But Bill and Lon doing baseball could not have been more opposite, complete opposites in how they approached broadcasting a game. And it was absolutely phenomenal for me to witness firsthand. And, and as we do, as you do, Josh, you try to figure out what works best for you. And I learned that to me, I thought I gravitated more toward Lon's approach and Lon's style. Um, uh, Bill was, and I think Bill became much less dependent on notes and biographies and stuff as he got further into baseball. But when I was working with him, he was still, you know, he had been away from baseball for a long, long time. And he had been rooted as a basketball, football action guy. And suddenly you're in baseball, which is a Xanax sport, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, huh? well, uh-huh. Calm down. And Lon was the master. Lon was the master of baseball, right? He was, that was Lon's natural style. Was the, and Bill was that. And uh, so it took Bill, I think, I think as, a, as great as Bill was as a baseball announcer, he was more naturally suited to, to he's Bill King to this day is the best football radio announcer I've ever heard. And just to me, that was Bill. Bill was born to be a football radio announcer. Lon was born to be a basket or excuse me, a baseball radio announcer. You can do other sports and do them well as they both did, but that was their natural place to me. 
I tried to find my natural baseball rhythm, and that, to me, it was much closer to Lon. I stumbled across this note about you that the first game that you did for NBC, the NBC Saturday game of the week, uh, hopefully this is correct, Saturday, April 19th, 1986, Twins at the Angels in Anaheim. Jim Cott was your partner. So this is, what, six, six and a half years removed from you're getting to do one inning of home games, and now you're doing a game on NBC, the game of the week. What are your nerves, and, and how are you feeling about how quickly things have started to progress for you? Well, good, yeah, good homework there, Josh. So, um, yeah, so I, God, I was 28 then, uh, and through a good fortune, I had met Bob Costas somewhere in the 84, 85 range, and I met Bob, who was a young guy, still a young guy himself, but it had cracked New York and the network thing. And, uh, and so as it turned out, somehow Bob went to Michael Weissman, who at the time was the executive producer of NBC Sports, and said, look, if you're looking for a young guy to back up on West Coast doubleheader days, you know, we got this young guy in the Bay Area, he's doing A's games now, yeah, give him a shot. And that's literally how it started. And so for to explain again, uh, television of another era, so in 1986, NBC would do a baseball game of the week every Saturday. Most Saturdays, I think, by then, most Saturdays were doubleheaders. They would do an Eastern, a 1 o'clock East Coast game, and then a 4 p.m. East, 1 p.m. West game. Uh, but back then, you, you're, even then, the local markets were protected. So if the NBC 1 o'clock Eastern game was Yankees and Red Sox, that game was not on NBC in New York or Boston to protect the local telecasts. So NBC had to do a backup game to feed into New York and Boston. So my opportunity to get hired in, in uh, 1986 was in essence four or five Saturdays during that season when they were doing West Coast doubleheader games I would get that West Coast doubleheader game. So it was Minnesota at Anaheim. I forget which markets it was going into. It doesn't matter. Um, the, and the end of the story of that day was we never got on the air. What? Never got on the air. The first game, uh, and I can't remember the primary game, but the second, the first game, the one o'clock Eastern time game ended you know, back in 1986, you could actually play a ball game in two hours and 20 minutes, <laughs> which they did quite a bit. So the game ended before four o'clock. The, the backup game was still going. So they switched the network to the backup game, which was in Montreal, and it went 16 innings or something like that. Well, you can't cut away. So the both games, the, it was Bob Costas and Tony Kubek were doing whatever the primary second game was and I was on with Jim Cott on that second game neither of us ever got on the air so we taped a post-game piece after the Twins Angels game ended and Rod Carew just I think had a few nights earlier Rod Carew had just uh, got his 3,000 hit so that was the storyline was Rod Carew joining his exclusive club blah 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 and it aired on NBC's post-game show the phone rings in the booth at the end of that and it's Michael Weissman for me. He goes, listen, hang with me. I'll give you another shot, which was incredibly gracious of him. And he did. And I did four years of NBC uh, Game of the Week. Um, it started as West Coast backup games. And I actually did 
Uh, I probably did five or six games with Tony Kubek filling in for Bob Costas. I did. I remember did a game at the Astrodome when Bob had been brought up to host the Today Show during the week to fill in. So he wasn't going to do a Saturday baseball game. So they called and sent me to go to do a game with Tony uh, at the Astrodome. And then during the 1988 Olympics, I filled in for three straight Saturdays um, where everybody else on NBC had gone to the Olympics and it was Vin Scully and Joe Garagiola doing the main game. And then I worked with Tony Kubek on the backup game, which was again, you know, barely 30 years old by then extraordinary thrill. And that worked into 1989. And then is what happens in sports television. Michael Weissman was moved out. Someone else came in to take over his job. And then, you know, I was, we were going to try different people. And that happened to be also the final year of NBC baseball. 1989 was the last year. 1990 baseball signed a deal with CBS. And that was a shame because NBC game of the week was an extraordinary part of uh, anybody of my generation, Josh, that was our baseball viewing history. And that went away, went away pretty promptly. Yeah. I, I mean, the 80s for me, it was the baseball bunch, and then it was uh, This Week in Baseball, and then it was the yeah. Game of the Week, and it, and it was must-see TV because you had so few opportunities to watch. I mean, you, there was only a handful of games of, of your local teams, yeah. let alone being able to watch national games, and that was, that was appointment TV. Let's talk about with the Minnesota Twins, and you, you mentioned um, you had multiple times that you worked for the Twins. Uh, before we started recording this, you used the, the phrase sweet spot in terms of age, when you're not the young guy and you're not the old guy and your time with the Twins in the late 80s and early 90s um, was that sweet spot. So where does that period rank? And certainly the Twins won the World Series in 1991, uh, their second where does where, where do those years with the twins rank in your most fondest? Uh, well, I, I mean, I had I had good experiences in in the four. I worked for for four teams. I had a couple of different stints with the with the twins. Um, and they, they all had positive things, but there's something special about the twins because those years I was there were the years and there were the years that I was the same age or close to the same age as the players. And as a broadcaster, that only happens one time. And in my earlier years, I was younger than many of the players. And then of course, by the time I got to the giants and then especially onto the Mets, now you're, you're way beyond the age of most players. You know, when I was with the Mets, by the way, I, I could sit and talk with Tom Glavin. I became pretty friendly, professionally friendly with Tom. He was closer in age. Mm-hmm. Steve Traxel, guys like that. But that was just a handful. When David Wright and Jose Ransom players like that come along, you know, okay, Uncle Ted, you know, let's go over and sit in the corner. And, I, and I'm joking in a sense, but you get what I'm saying. In, the, in those years in Minnesota, it was a sweet spot because I was close in age to the players. It was a small market, very little media coverage, very little traveling media Thus, we were accepted as an announcer. I was accepted as part of the team. My wife became friendly with many of the wives. It was just a very close-knit group. And even though that did present some challenges, because times on the air where you may have to say something that isn't complimentary about somebody who you're friends with and your wife is friends with, you know, we're all friends together, that did. I, I would be, I would be, dishonest if I didn't admit that that at times created some 
awkward moments, but not many. And in no way did it offset just that joy of being a part, feeling like you're a part of something. And when, uh, when the twins won, uh, the, the, when they clinched the West division in 1991, uh, we were in, we were, we were on the airport tarmac in Hamilton, Ontario. We just finished playing Toronto and on the bus ride to Hamilton, which is where we went because customs getting out of Canada was much cleaner out of Hamilton. The uh, White Sox were the second place team. They lost. So the twins clinched. So now we're flying to Chicago to play the White Sox, but have already clinched. We get to Chicago, the, the players rent some ballroom to have a party, and they come up to me and our television producer, the two of us, you guys come. I mean, we were invited, so we are in the in, inside party that the players had to celebrate clinching that night. That's the kind of stuff that happens one time. That's it. And uh, so that was special. Um, and, and I think the fact, again, that I, I used to joke with this, I became very friendly with Mike Piazza. I got to know him when he was a Dodger and I was a giant announcer and then went up on the same team with the Mets and sat with him on planes for four years and just became very friendly with him. Mike ends up playing for the A's. So I go over one night to see him in the Coliseum and I walk in the clubhouse, the A's clubhouse, and there he's sitting there and I walk up to him and I said, man, welcome to witness protection. (laughs) And he laughed because after playing in Los Angeles and New York, he's now in Oakland and Josh, you know what I'm talking about. That's, I, I think that's always, I shouldn't say always, I think that's often worked to the A's benefit mm-hmm. is the fact that you don't have the scrutiny as a player in today's world that you get in almost every other city. You don't get that when you play for the Oakland A's. And I think that oftentimes works to the A's benefit. I know A's people sometimes, I was an A's person there for a while. You, you chafe, you want to be recognized and acknowledged. I totally get that. But I really believe sometimes, and especially my four years working in New York, having grown up there, but then going back to work, I saw that scrutiny in New York never worked to the Mets' benefit the four years I was there, not once. And a lot of their, a lot of their problems when I was there were self-inflicted. There's no blame to anybody else. But the scrutiny that it came with was, was absolutely was, – it, it hurt, which is why I'll tell you that Joe Torre, to me, is a first ballot Hall of Famer like before any other manager that should ever go in. What he did in New York with those Yankees all those years without ever stepping into any pile of anything is one of the greatest achievements I ever saw in my baseball life. Um, I want to ask you about a game on June 17th, 1991. The Orioles are playing the Twins. And the only reason why this random game would be brought up is that a couple of years later, the movie A Few Good Men came out and Tom Cruise's character is going through a moment where he's thinking and there's a baseball game on in the background. And lo and behold, that is your voice in the background from that game. I'm wondering, when did you realize that your voice was in the background of the movie, A Few Good Men? The morning after it opened, I got calls. I was in Minnesota and uh, the morning after the film premiered, and back then again, films premiered actually in movie theaters on Friday nights. (laughs) And Saturday morning, we get calls in the house from friends going, oh, man, you didn't tell me you were going to be in this movie. That's awesome. What are you talking about? <laughs> so the uh, story that Josh is saying is there are two different scenes in A Few Good Men where Cruz is in his apartment swinging his bat, pacing up and down, strategizing. 
and they are in the, both cases, there are baseballs on the TV. And in both cases, they are live actual calls. One was a San Diego Padres game with Jerry Coleman. And the other was the game you referenced, Josh, that was at the old stadium in Baltimore. And it was as soon as I found out, I mean, the game, the call was significant because the twins had a 15 game winning streak, which we know how crazy that is in baseball to have. They had a 15-game winning streak. They're playing in Baltimore against a bad Orioles team, and they have the lead going to the bottom of the ninth to win 16 in a row. But the Orioles rally off Rick Aguilera to win the game, and the call that is actually on the film is Randy Milligan, old first baseman, hit a gapper uh, to win the game in the bottom of the ninth. So, of course, I had no idea this happened. And – as you know, your, your first reaction is, wow, that's really incredible. What, what a cool thing that is to be in this movie with Cruz and Nicholson and Demi Moore and, you know, young uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Kevin Bacon, all these people. That's pretty cool. And then you say, I didn't get paid for that. Right. So I actually had someone call uh, Rob Reiner's production company, Castle Rock. And, uh, and the end of the story becomes the response after several back and forth phone calls that sue us. <laughs> and so, so the lesson you learn is there's a reason why in every baseball broadcast to this day, at some point they come on and say, this copyrighted broadcast is yeah. the property of major league baseball. So the point being that they castle rock paid MLB for those clips, not Jerry Coleman or Ted <laughs> Robinson. <laughs> Well, Rob Reiner is a huge baseball fan and a Dodger fan. And as some people have pointed out on the various IMDb pages and such, that it's actually a goof because if Cruz was living in Washington, D.C., then he should have been watching the Orioles broadcast. Yeah. He would not have been getting the Twins broadcast. And so I was wondering if Rob Reiner had done it as a favor to you for some reason. <laughs> never. Had no idea. Never never had the chance. I'd love to meet him because I admire his work so much. But no. And you're right because it – and, and, and it, the, the San Diego clip, I believe, was playing the Braves. So it could have been TBS back then, but it wouldn't have been Jerry Coleman. It would have been Skip Carey and Pete Van Wern, right? Yeah. So the same, same thing. I have no idea. Never, ever been offered any explanation as to why those particular clips were the ones picked out. But the clip that they did use of my call was a major moment because it was a game-winning hit that snapped a 15-game win streaks in baseball exceptional. Let's talk about your time in San Francisco. You're back in the Bay Area in 1993. And for a lot of Giants fans, that 1993 season is, is one of the most magical, even though they did not make the playoffs, because it's the first year of the new ownership group. And they, they added those bleachers in left field, which made it more intimate. And they, and they used a foghorn when a home run was hit. And, and they cleaned up the place. And of course, they signed Barry Bonds. And it's the only year that, that Barry Bonds and Will Clark are teammates and Dusty Baker's first year as a manager, and they win 103 games, and they famously lose on the last day of the regular season. So you're back in the Bay Area, and I'm wondering what things about that season are, are most indelible in your mind? Wow, that's, um, that's a very special single year. I mean, the, the Twins winning the World Series in 1991, is you can't match that in my time in baseball. Josh, but I would tell you the 93 Giants is a very, very close second. 
and they didn't play a playoff game, which is hard to believe. I'll argue it's the best San Francisco Giants team ever. You know, maybe maybe one of those 60s, early 60s teams could argue. But, I mean, that year, that team, that was the best San Francisco Giants team I saw. And, uh, you know, obviously wasn't broadcasting for the teams that won the World Series, but I watched them play. I don't know. I mean, defensively, that 93 team defensively was exceptional up the middle with Darren Lewis in center field, Royce Clayton and Robbie, and Robbie Thompson's greatest year by far, 1993. Royce Clayton and Robbie Thompson um, at short and second and Kurt Manwaring behind the plate, gold glovers, Matt Williams at third base, gold glover, and Barry Bonds in left field. Barry Bonds in 1993 to me, was the best offensive player in the National League. We had no interleague that year, so I can only speak national. He was the best offensive player in the National League that year, and he was the best defensive player in the National League that year. And I know people hear that now. What are you talking about? He was brilliant. Couldn't throw. Didn't matter. He was so fast, was in great shape, pre-any additives. He covered ground that was – you could not hit a double to between Barry Bonds and Darren Lewis. You could or, or line. If you tried to go left field line, you had a hard time hitting a double. That's how good Barry was. And, you know, obviously as great an offensive player as he went on to become, to me it was slightly saddened that his defense got away from him. And, you know, the, anyway, that's another story. You know, 93, and, and you had three other elements of that team. You had uh, John Burke and Billy Swift that were just lights out, money, both 20-game winning starting pitchers. And you had a lights out reliever in Rod Beck who left his, literally left his arm on the mound. He was never the same pitcher after the stretch run. I think he saved nine games the last 10 days of the 93 season before the final Sunday at Dodger Stadium. And he was never the same pitcher after that. Uh, But an utter great, great competitor and great teammate. Uh, the, the part, Josh, I'll finish the part of that year that I talked to Mike Kruko about this. We did a, a thing about two weeks ago. And I said, I've never in my life, not even the World Series team that I was around with Minnesota, not even this team had, that team had, every move that Dusty made that year worked. And I know everybody says Solomon Torres, the last game, there was no good option. I'm sorry. I'll defend Dusty to the death on that one. There was no good option. And by the way, the bullpen was the one that let that game get away. Solomon Torres' start was not good, but the bullpen let it get out of hand. Anyway, that whole year, anytime somebody went down with an injury, somebody couldn't play for three days, you had to call a guy up from AAA. Pitchers went down. Jeff Brantley got hurt. Mike Jackson got hurt somewhere during that year. Jackson was a great setup man. Everybody that plugged in did well. And that is the only time in my baseball time I ever saw that, where a manager just don't give up the dice, Dusty, stay at the table, and you are hot. So, and, and then the last part of it is, of course, the specialness of seeing two point whatever million people come to Candlestick. The team was going to leave. Everybody was disappointed. Played a ton of day games, and the fans loved it. It was it was uh, it was an exceptional year, and sadly. For the Giants, sadly, it was the last the last great pennant race in baseball. There will never be another one because this was winner take all. And the Braves won, and the Giants flew home on Sunday night with 103 wins and went home without a playoff game. It will never happen again.
Yeah, I remember I was at San Diego State. I drove up for the Friday night game at Dodger Stadium when Bonds, I think it was two home runs and a double and seven RBIs or whatever. And um, didn't go to the Saturday game, but I remember driving back up again for the Sunday game with my friend Jacob <laughs> Dalton. And we finally got two tickets. And, you know, like a minute before the game started, some dad just handed us the tickets for free. We couldn't believe it. And then he couldn't believe it when he realized that, that we were from the Bay Area and we were cheering against the Dodgers. Um, but obviously, you know, I, know, and I remember that drive back home to San Diego. I don't think Jacob and I said more than five words to each other the entire drive back down to San Diego. You had a lot of memorable, dramatic home run calls in your time with the Giants. And I kind of want to break down the two different types of home run calls. Um, in my mind, one of them is when someone is on the doorstep of history and it's just a matter of when they're going to hit the home run. And most of those involve a Barry Bonds milestone, which we'll get to in a moment. But the other one is the home run that kind of comes out of nowhere. And in my mind, the one that sums it up best is September 18th, 1997, 12th inning, Brian Johnson's home run, wins it, a walk-off. That tied the Dodgers for first place. It was a two-game sweep. And so when it comes to those calls, one where you know that it's coming at some point and the other is spontaneous, let's start with how you react in that moment for that Brian Johnson home run. Yeah, Uh, that's a great question, Josh. Um, the, the Brian Johnson, there, there are four home runs to me that, that I remember that I was, I was pretty pleased with the way I handled the moments. Hard to say this. I know without sounding self-congratulatory, I, I plead guilty, but, um, four that stand out two in each category you just mentioned. So the first two in that totally unexpected, no prep were JT Snow off Benitez in the playoffs against the Mets in 2000. Yep. Game two. And I, I, I just, that's probably my all time favorite. When I, every time I listen, I 20 years later, and I, I still talk to JT fairly regularly and love the guy. Um, that one was the equivalent to me of the Vernon Davis playoff catch I called for the 49ers where I felt candlestick shaking. When JT hit that home run, I could feel the ballpark move in its first season. The Brian Johnson one was, was, was extraordinary. It was fascinating to me because I knew Brian. I was the Stanford radio announcer, Brian Johnson's freshman year as the starting quarterback at Stanford. So I had known Brian 10 years earlier and, you know, knew he, of course, he was a great baseball player and that had been his choice to play professionally. And then suddenly the Giants get him in the middle of that season. I thought that was great. So I, you know, we've been talking to him during the second half of that year and uh, was ecstatic that he had that moment. And look, that was the, um, the validation moment to me of what had been a very tough moment for Giants fans to accept, which was that previous offseason, Brian Sabian becomes the general manager. He's given the keys and pretty much the first thing he does is trade Matt Williams. And that was hard. I mean, that was hard for a lot of Giants fans. I had a hard time. I mean, I love Matt. And he was just a great Giant, a great ball player. And that was hard to see. But the validation paid off because when Brian Johnson hit that home run, now you knew, okay, this was a winning atmosphere had been created. The previous years, the two previous two, I mean, 96 was, 1996 was, was borderline embarrassing for the Giants because the major league team was completely decimated. They went to the minor leagues 
to bring up all of these players, and they found out their minor leagues were terrible. They had one minor leaguer, if you remember. The only guy that really made it off that 96 team was Billy Miller. We brought Billy Miller up amongst many others that year, and Billy was a, was a big league player. He was really the only one. So that's why Brian, in the offseason, when he got the job, he basically had to go do I mean, Daryl Hamilton, um, you know, the Kent, Vizcaino, Tavares, and the Matt Williams trade, um, JT Snow. He had to rebuild everything and did a great job with it. So that home run, then the, the, the JT Snow one, then the two that you knew were coming that I was very happy with were Barry Bonds' 500th home run, which the night he hits his 500th against the Dodgers, again, the first year of the ballpark, you're not really thinking that he's going to get to 700 <laughs> and 700 and whatever he ended up with. That was not really the idea then. Um, and so I, I obviously didn't know that I was going to get to call that, you know, our world of rotating innings. You have no idea. And I just, I, I never, ever thought out a call. I just knew that if he hit it in Pac Bell Park, I was going to say San Francisco because I thought it was so significant being in the new ballpark in the city of San Francisco for a guy that came home to play as a free agent. And so I did. In the, in the call, I said something about into the San Francisco night. Um, and then the other call to me that I was, and I, I was very, I was proud of this one was his 70th, which was in Houston after they had intentionally walked him for three consecutive games. And he finally had an at-bat in a meaningless game in the ninth inning against a nondescript minor league guy. And he just crushed one. And what I was very happy with was, again, I, I had no pre-planning, but it was radio. And you do it too, Josh, you know, just call what you see. Mm-hmm. And I described, and I, as I listened back to that, that one, um, I, I was very happy with the way I described everything, where the ball went, what Bonds did as he ran at the bases, the team pouring out of the dugout, uh, blah, blah, blah. And that, that, that's, to me, ultimately, if you're on radio, that's what you do. You call what you see. And I think the 70th in Houston was the one I was very happy with. Let's talk more about that series in Houston. Um, 2001 is when Bonds hit 73 home runs to break the single season record. I'm covering the Giants for the Oakland Tribune. Uh, obviously, you're, you're doing the games for the Giants. To me, it, really, that was the culmination of, of five weeks. I mean, the, these dates and images are, are seared into my brain. It's a Sunday in Denver. Bonds hits three home runs. He's got 63 home runs. And I remember that was the day that I decided I'm going to write a book about him breaking the record. He's going to break the record, and I'm going to figure out a way to write a book about this season. The next day, the team is in Houston. It's an off day. We didn't learn this until four months later, but Bonds gets a death threat that goes to um, um, the city of Houston, a death threat that he's going to get shot if he plays the next day. And then the day after that is September 11th of 2001. And so that's the day that the country changes forever. And we're all stuck in Houston for two or three days. And then we finally get home and there's no baseball for a week. And then baseball returns and we're unsure on, on how, we should, how we should react to this new world that we're living in. And then we go back to Houston because the week that got canceled, we had to finish that. And so we go back to Houston now where we were when this happened. And the Astros are trying to get into the playoffs and the Giants are trying to get into the playoffs. And Larry Dierker, the manager of the Astros, is intentionally walking Bonds left and right. And the Houston fans are booing their own manager, even though Larry Dierker is doing what he thinks is the best strategy to win games and to get his team to the playoffs, and yet the home fans are booing him. 
and then Barry finally gets a chance in the ninth inning. It, it's a blowout. And like you said, a, a kid up from the minor leagues who throws 95 or 96. And Bonds hits the home run to tie it. And I remember, to me, that was the culmination of just this unbelievable five weeks for our country and for the sport. And do we even care if Barry Bonds breaks the record? Because Mark McGuire just said it three years before. And to me, that was just the, the culmination of, of, of a time in my life that I will never forget. And I don't even know what the question is at this point, other than <laughs> what, what, what are some of the other little memories that you have of, of, of just that whole time period? I, you know, the first thing is I'm, I'm thinking, Josh, as you're saying that, how did you get home from Houston after 9-11? I was on one of the first commercial flights back okay. home. And I remember... This I'll also never forget. We're getting ready to land at San Francisco. It's me and all the other beat writers. And as we're getting ready to land at SFO, all of a sudden the plane comes up and takes off again, just as we were getting ready to land. And I just remember going like, oh no, what is happening? What is happening right now? What is happening in the world? Why are we not landing? And as it turned out, we learned either later that day or the next day, there was a guy who was just in a small fishing boat and he called in. And he said, I could shoot down a plane from right here. He didn't have a gun. He wasn't intending to do that. But he wanted to try to warn the authorities that that could be done. As a result, we circled around the Bay Area three, four, maybe five times. And then I remember the pilot got on and let us know what was going on. And, or basically let us know that he didn't know what was going on, but that we have to circle around because of something. And I remember he said, we have one more pass to land. And if we can't land we're running out of fuel and we're going to have to land either in San Jose or somewhere else where it's safe. And then we'll bus you back up to San Francisco. And thank goodness we finally got the clearance and we landed. And I remember just like getting off the plane, just going, Oh my gosh. Oh, like, Oh my gosh, what is going on in the world right now? Um, just, yeah, that was a scary. And we were one of the first commercial flights that took off. Yeah. Okay. That's why I was wondering, cause I, that's funny. I've never asked anybody that question. You know, you were, uh, I remember Gwen Knapp, who wrote for the Chronicle at the time, was there also, and uh, and we had lunch the, on nine eleven. Kruko, I think Kruko Kuiper, myself, and Gwen had lunch in one of the restaurants in the Galleria where the team stayed, and they basically hurried us up because in the hours aftermath they were going to close the mall and close all the restaurants quickly. But I never remember. So what I never had never asked any of the uh, of the writers, the writers that were there had, had to fly commercial. I remember a couple of things vividly. We had to, uh, as the announcers for the team, we were considered part of the team. So the team had security. And I don't know if it was secret, it probably wasn't secret service, but it may have been FBI or something. But we, uh, the announcers of the team, we had to go to uh, Enron Field on 9-12 and 9-13 with the team for workouts where everybody was supposed to stay together, everybody. So we were in the clubhouse, you're on a field watching them work out. And then it turned out 9-13, which was Thursday, during the workout, they told us we were going to be able to leave as they were opening up Hobby Airport so the 49er or the uh, Giants charter could take off at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So that's, we were able to get out Thursday afternoon. But I remember two things. One is um, no moment was I ever more proud of baseball players than being in the clubhouse as we were able to be. And I can't remember, it must have been 9-12. But if you recall, Josh, the initial thought by the president was, and, and 
and Bud Selig was that we're going to play baseball Friday. Well, Friday had been declared by the, it must have been the baseball site because the president had declared Friday the national day of mourning. And by the way, the Giants were still in Houston. The Giants were the major league team furthest away from their home city. So you, we were all, no one was further away in baseball from their home city than the Giants were. I know people had looked into busing, how long it was going to take the bus home, and that was discounted. But I remember walking and standing in the clubhouse, and I heard a call, and I walked over, and Jeff Kent, who was the player rep, was on the phone, and I'm assuming it was the MLBPA. And I remember Jeff Kent saying, I don't care what baseball says. You tell them that the San Francisco Giants are not playing on Friday, period. And I man, that's amen to you, Jeff Kent. Amen. And I was, seriously, no moment have I been more proud of baseball players than standing up for what was right. And then being a New Yorker, 9-11, you know, it, it clearly struck in, in a lot of ways. And uh, that was phenomenal. Then I remember being out on the field watching Barry Bonds in batting practice that day. And I was standing with Aurelia and Snow. And Barry was hitting balls in what was then Enron Field that were a joke. I mean, it was BP, admittedly. But hitting balls that human beings were not supposed to. And, and I remember Aurelia and Snow were laughing. Laughing. Who does this? They were laughing at where Bonds was hitting balls. And now, of course, three weeks later, as you outline the scenario, we come back and he doesn't get a chance to swing. They won't pitch to him. And I happened to, I worked with Larry Durker as a broadcaster before he had a chance to manage. I liked him a lot. And, you know, I was as frustrated as anybody else about what he was doing, but you framed it perfectly. This is what he thought he had to do to make the playoffs. Um, and the other thing I remember vividly. Josh began being in, in the position I was in was Willie Mays being there. And why did that matter? Because Bonds, who was exceptional that entire year, really was. Bonds was exceptional in handling the attention that came his way. Bonds never was rattled by all those intentional walks, never showed his frustration, never tipped greatest poker player ever, right? He never showed the Houston Astros that I'm pissed off that you're doing this. And Willie Mays was a big part of that because Willie was in the clubhouse every day and he was trying to, you know, talk Barry down, make sure that Barry stayed here. And, and I think as you probably wrote, Josh, to me, this is just me now, but I think the reason, remember that entire team poured out of the dugout when he hit 70 that night, you didn't see that happen a lot for Barry, but I think those players, I, I, I believe in my heart, those players respected the fact that Barry Bonds kept his personal thing out of that clubhouse. He really did. He took all of that media attention, took it outside. He didn't allow it to, because the team was trying to make the playoffs, which they failed on the final weekend to do. But I think the guys respected that. There were a lot of stuff about Barry that was hard for them to take. But I really believe that that team respected the fact that he did not put 73 in the middle of their clubhouse. Yeah, there, there's so many things that I remember about that season. It's probably because, again, shameless plug that I wrote a book about yeah. it, and so it got into my head. But I remember just what it meant. I thought that Sean Dunstan and Eric Davis being on that team, you know, two guys that were his peers, that were his contemporaries, that, 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 he, could, that he could vent to those two guys. Remember they got Andres Galarraga, just another veteran guy, and, and I just felt like there was enough other big egos in the room that could keep Barry in check when needed, but also, like you said, they knew what he was going through. They probably knew about the death threats, even though we didn't know about it until years later. And um, 
Yeah, just, just um, geez, just what an unbelievable time. I, I wanted to ask you if, if, I, if I can bounce around a little bit. I remember getting asked about this in countless interviews and, and trying to, to put it accurately in, in my writings. The dynamic between Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds and how they were similar and how they were different in your take all these years later about those two players' relationship. Yeah, I... I didn't see a whole lot of it. I mean, I didn't see a whole lot of relationship between the two of them is what I'm saying. I, you know, it's, it's hard now because I don't want to be speaking about things that I'm really not up to speed on. I'll just tell you what I saw, which was not much. Um, and to be completely, first of all, full disclosure, I had a much better professional relationship with Barry. I feel like I got along well with Barry. He did a lot of pregame shows with me. He would do things when I'd asked um, I didn't ask him a lot, which he respected. But when he when I did, he was almost always cooperative. Um, I spent a lot of time sitting with him on buses and in dugouts talking. Uh, so I didn't have that with Jeff Kent. Jeff was not that kind of guy. And, uh, and you know, Jeff was a tremendous baseball player with the Giants, but not he didn't have a real close relationship with anybody. So it really, to me, I'm not sure how much I don't know if Barry what Barry felt about Jeff. I never really heard much about it. I don't think Jeff Kent was the kind of guy that thrived on being close to any of his teammates, but there's no question. And I remember vividly we're in Montreal and Rick Riley wrote a, I think it was Montreal. Anyway, we were on the road that year and Rick Riley wrote a back page piece in sports illustrated. That was all about this clubhouse discord and, uh, you know, basically he was peeved by what I've understood later. He was peeved because Barry blew him off. Right. Exactly. His, you know, Rick had an ego and Rick didn't like being blown off by a guy who had an ego too. So uh, I remember that, you know, this is 2001 again. So era fax machine words in the training room. And here comes the Rick Riley piece. And there are about five or six guys in there and they, they read that and they laugh and they go, what's the big deal about this? This is not new. We all know this. And, you know, so I'm saying that was, my point was that whatever, and I think that's why the 2000 and 2001 Giants and 2001 was my last season. So in 2002, they would go to the World Series. I wasn't there, but 01 and 02 were very strong uh, because that, whatever the dynamics were with those, they were very strong personalities in their own way, Bonds and Kent. The team was not impacted by that at all. There were enough good guys, enough strong, and as you referenced, Josh, big personalities, and but really good players, mm-hmm. really good players. Yeah. And they did not let that stuff, you know, it almost, I mean, really, the, like the reaction I remember it being in the training room that night when that piece came in was almost eye roll. Like, oh, okay. This again? We've already heard this 50 times. What's new about this? The, the favorite analogy that I would give, I remember one time standing next to the batting cage, and Barry and Jeff were actually having a conversation Although fitting for those two, they never made eye contact with one another. Both of them lived along the peninsula, and they were discussing the best way to get to the ballpark. And one of them was saying, you got to take 280, and the other was saying, no, you got to take 380. And I remember at one point, Jeff Kent actually said to me in a quote, Barry and I are on different highways, but we're trying to get to the same place. And then literally, they were discussing the different highways that they took to get to the ballpark. One was taking 280 and one was taking 380. And I said, this is literal and it's figurative about what these two are like and how much 
they needed each other and pushed each other and were both loners and brought the best out of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a great, that's a great analogy to use Josh. Cause I would agree with that same thing. They were, they were trying to do the same. Both wanted to win badly. They had different ways to go about it. And again, neither one, neither one was tremendously social with teammates. Uh, you know, Barry, one of the reasons I spent a lot of time, a lot of time talking to Barry was, you know, the Giants team would travel with two buses and the second bus was basically for, you know, knuckleheads like the announcers and the TV crew and then the equipment guys and, uh, you know, some of the coaches. I mean, it was just extra, but players always rode the first bus. Barry rode our bus all the time. That's why I would sit, you know, a lot of the times, you know, I would sit up front and Barry would be willing to talk and, especially if you didn't talk baseball, Barry would talk forever with you if you didn't talk baseball. Um, and that's, that's something I've, I've experienced with other players, but anyway, Barry and Jeff to me were the same way in that regard. They both were pretty much solo performers who happened to be in a team sport. You've been very generous with your time. I want to talk about one more topic before I let you go. And that is the 2000 Olympics. Um, this is the year of the USA. They won the gold medal. Famously, in the, in the championship game, you've got a young Ben Sheets that's on the mound who goes the distance, and Tommy Lasorda is the manager. I don't know if he knew anybody's names on the team, or certainly he didn't when he started. Uh, they had some dramatic walk-off home runs. Uh, Mike Neal hit one in the 13th inning to beat Japan in the round robin. Doug Minkiewicz hit one in the semifinals to get to the championship game. Um, how many of those games, including the round robin, did you call for NBC? Was it just the championship game, or did you call um, all of them? Yeah, that's a great call, Josh. So that was my first summer Olympics, and NBC had hired me and, and hired me to call baseball. And I was thrilled. Um, by that point, they already knew Tommy was going to be the manager, so that gave it a little extra juice. And it was the first time that professional players were going to be allowed to play baseball in the Olympics. So that meant that the United States could go to major league teams and get, uh, get players. Now, nobody came off a major league roster. Um, they did get a collection. Uh, two players with Giants roots played, and actually some A's roots. Marcus Jensen was a backup catcher on the team, and Kurt Ainsworth, who was a first-round draft pick, Giants pitcher that never made it in the big leagues, but Kurt was on the team also. Um, there were guys that were the quintessential 4A players, uh, but then there were some prospects, and the prospects, the handful of prospects that came through ended up being big, none bigger than Ben Sheets, who pitched a, a shutout in the gold medal game against Cuba. The number two starter was Roy Oswalt, Brad Wilkerson, who had a good long uh, run in, in, with Montreal slash Washington was a starting outfielder. Uh, Adam Everett was a good fielding shortstop for Houston, I think. I'm not sure where else he played. Pat Borders, the at uh, well, age 40-something, was the catcher. Borders was the – yeah, Borders was – I'll tell that story in a second. Borders was on the back end, right? He was a guy that was on the way out that wound up being the, the, the starting catcher. Um, and it was an interesting collection because the two things happened. The team was put together by two people, one of whom you know well, Bob Watson – and Sandy Alderson, they were the two men who put the team together. Um, and, and I know, I remember I had dinner, it was, I obviously had worked with Sandy when I was with the A's a long, long time ago. And so we had dinner with Sandy and Sydney. And, you know, there were some interesting uh, things, the background of putting that team together, one of which was several teams refused to let their prospects go. CC Sabathia was a big one. 
because Cleveland was wanting to dictate how he would be used. Uh, Corey Patterson was another, I remember, another top prospect at the time whose pair of teams had not, not let him go play in the Olympics. But thankfully, Sheets, Oswald, Everett, uh, Wilkerson, their organizations did. Um, Tommy, uh, the other issue was that at that point, for the first time, drug testing started. It had to. Yep. Olympic base, you got professional players play in the Olympic Games. They have to be. They have to pass the Olympic drug test. So USA Baseball has to know the players they're sending can do so. Right. And so minor leagues. So because there was no remember there was no drug testing in Major League Baseball at all. So that eliminated any thought of having players off of Major League rosters come to the Olympics. But the minor leaguers could be. And so all these prospects, all of them, and there were certain players, and I do not know any names because I was not told, but I know that the concept is absolutely true. There were players in 1999 that were eliminated from contention for the Olympic team in 2000 because they could not pass the drug test. So again, the era that we were in in baseball, yes, even bled there, um, that certain players, they they were put through, hey, we got to find out if you can do this and certain number couldn't pass. Um, but, but the Olympics themselves, the, the, the baseball competition, it was, uh, it was interesting because uh, the United States, you said they won the first game. The first game, Mike Neal did a walk-off home run to beat Japan in the 13th inning. Japan's starting pitcher, Daisuke Matsuzaka. Really? Daisuke Matsuzaka started that game. And he did something that I had only seen once previously. He pitched an inning, and then when Japan came to bat, he went down to the bullpen and threw. He threw in the bullpen while Japan was batting. I saw Nomo. Hideo Nomo made his first major league start at Candlestick Park against the Giants. He did a full warm-up bullpen the day before the game. That's unheard of, right, by American pitchers. Nomo did a full bullpen throw, full the day before his first start. So Matsuzaka pitches, great game. He's out by the 13th inning, U.S. wins. Doug Minkiewicz hit a walk-off home run to beat uh, South Korea in the round robin. Okay. And then he hit another walk-off to win the semifinal. He had two against Korea um, to put the U.S. into the gold medal game. Sheets does you know, an astounding job because Tommy Lasorda had thought and was proven wrong. The brilliance was in the round robin play when the U.S. played Cuba – there was a thought that Cuba did not handle junk ball pitching. And they had a veteran on the team, a veteran left-handed pitcher named Rick Krivda, who had been, again, he had had some major league time, but he was basically a 4A guy. And he started that game against Cuba because they thought a lefty junk ball or off-speed stuff would Cuba crush them. And Cuba won the game. And it was an ugly game. It was a bad home play collision with Pat Borders. It was a lot of bad stuff that happened. But – the lesson was that that didn't work. So what are you going to do? You put a guy that throws 95 out there in the gold medal match and sheets blew them away, blew them away. Final point about the Olympic gold medal. So now the game ends and I'm fairly certain of this fact, although it doesn't fit the narrative very well. Tommy Lasorda did not realize that in the Olympics, managers, coaches don't get a medal. The only people that get medals are the competitors. So this is not the World Series. You don't get a ring. Tommy did. Tommy thought he was going to be up on the podium. He was not on the podium. 
you can't. It's just the Olympics. Only the players. And so Tommy, and there's a shot of him as the anthem is being played with the flag going up, and Tommy's standing there with his eyes all moist. He's by the backstop with Rod Dado, the legendary USC coach. Tommy brought Rod Dado with him to Sydney to be his wingman, just, you know, have somebody to, to be with. But I'll never forget to, that we're there, we were calling that live on uh, back then, MSNBC, believe it or not, we were calling the game live. And as the camera's panning the U.S. team, how many of these guys were crying? Were crying. I mean, Kavich, who had, had already had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, but the one was the guy you referenced. Pat Borders had World Series rings from his time in Toronto. But to get a gold medal and to stand on that podium and to have the flag open, your anthem played, he had tears coming down. And that, to me, was the moment. It was my first summer games, but that's when I, it, it kind of smacks me that this is what the Olympics means. Here's a guy with World Series rings that he won as a player, right? Now he wins an Olympic gold medal, and everybody's kind of in the baseball world rolls their eyes at this thing. When you go through it, it means a ton. Last thought. We all know that, look, we're just the broadcasters. They're the athletes. They're the, they're the ones who do it. But when you think about all the grand slams that you've done and all the baseball playoff games and the, the, the 49ers playoff games and everything. Um, where does the 2000 Olympic baseball team winning the gold medal rank in just the, the just the coolest assignments that you've been able uh, to be a part of? Oh, that's the best baseball game I ever called without question because of the meme. You know, and obviously I, I never had a chance to call a world. I was a part of a world series in Minnesota, but I was the TV announcer. So by the, uh, World Series. I was doing radio pre and post game stuff. That's all. So I never called a World Series game. Um, uh, you know, the JT Snow home run game is probably the best, you know, most memorable major league baseball call to me would be that because it was a playoff game and it was so dramatic. Um, so the U.S. baseball game, I mean, really, I, I kind of focus on three events basically, which are the Federer Nadal 2008 Wimbledon final, uh, the Vernon Davis. Uh, catch for the 49ers to beat the New Orleans Saints in the 2011 playoffs at Candlestick and the USA baseball gold medal because it was just it was it meant so much and having spent so much time in baseball I I knew I mean I had a much better identity as to what it meant you know especially to guys like Sandy Alderson and Bob Watson who slaved for you know worked so hard for a year to put this team together try to make it work <laughs> and it worked remark to beat Cuba. Cuba had never lost in Olympic baseball. So that, that was, without question, it's the most memorable baseball game I call. All right, Ted. Again, you've been extremely generous with your time, so I don't want to bother you anymore, um, even though we, I, could, I could talk with you for hours. And all we did was talk baseball. Um, there's so many other sports. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was great to uh, talk with you once again. And if I ever come through Albuquerque, you know, I better call Josh. <laughs> That was Ted Robinson, and this is Life Around the Seams.